Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The search for an ingenious imposter. It's a terrifying situation. You've got these men who are, are depending on him to save their lives. A delicious and deadly experiment. It was dangerous. He didn't know what the results were going to be. And the tale of a teenage atomic spy. He's very nervous. He knows that he's crossing a threshold. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics. Tales of intrigue and wonder. And secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. In Scranton, Pennsylvania, during the 19th century, industry was booming, and the city became a magnet for traveling entertainers. Today, a few miles from downtown, an unassuming blue building celebrates one of the most notable artists to have dazzled the region, Harry Houdini. The Houdini Museum contains a treasure trove of objects that temporarily bound the legendary illusionist. Handcuffs, a milk can, and a wooden pillory. But one item captures an arresting gaze from which Houdini could never escape. It weighs about 40 pounds. It's about uh, 30 by 36. It's a beautiful picture, sepia-colored, of a very serene and beautiful woman. Museum curator Dick Brooks knows the powerful influence this item had upon the great performer. This photo was the catalyst for a bitter tale that haunted Houdini until his death. Who is this woman? And what role did she play in the most controversial illusion in Harry Houdini's life? 1913, Harlem, New York. Noted escape artist Harry Houdini is reeling from the sudden death of his beloved mother, Cecilia. He clings to her memory and spends hours gazing at her portrait. He was beside himself. Houdini would have done anything to contact his mother. 
he believes he may have a chance by way of a rapidly growing faith that's sweeping the nation. It's called spiritualism. Spiritualism is the belief that you can talk or contact people after they die. In an attempt to commune with his departed mother, Houdini turns to spiritualist mediums. But after a few sessions, he is underwhelmed. They speak in what's known as glittering generalities. But they would never say anything specific. It's a level of deception that enrages the famed illusionist. Houdini called himself an honest deceiver. He would trick you, and he would tell you he's tricking you. These people were dishonest deceivers. They would trick you and tell you it was real. Houdini vows to debunk spiritualism and its practitioners. In 1920, he publishes a scathing attack on the movement. The article catches the eye of the world-renowned author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle wrote all the Sherlock Holmes novels. He was probably the most famous person to promote spiritualism. Conan Doyle isn't put off by Houdini's tirade. In fact, he sees it as an opportunity. He decided, wouldn't it be great if I could convince Houdini to believe in spiritualism? So the two men meet and, despite their differences, become fast friends. Then, in 1922, while on vacation together in Atlantic City, Conan Doyle makes a proposal. He wanted to have a seance with Houdini in an attempt to contact Houdini's mother. Conan Doyle knows just the person to lead the seance, his wife, Jean. The skeptical illusionist warily agrees. One night, with Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle looking on, Jean begins the seance. Jean went into a trance, and at first nothing happened. But then, she suddenly lurches forward. And all of a sudden, her pencil jerked. And she instantly began to write page after page after page. Houdini watches as Jean seemingly transcribes loving messages from mother to son. At the top of the first page, she put a sign of a cross. And then she wrote, oh, my darling son, I miss you. After the seance, Conan Doyle publishes an account of the events, boasting of his success in contacting Houdini's mother. But Houdini feels quite differently. Boy, oh boy, Houdini got enraged about this. He publicly slams the experience and says that Gene Conan Doyle is just another fraud, and he can prove it. As a Hungarian Jew, his mother would never have used the sign of the cross. Furthermore, she did not speak English. The disagreement causes an irreparable rift between the two friends. At this point, Houdini's relationship with Doyle ends. But four years later, a terrible tragedy offers Houdini one last chance to test the validity of spiritualism. Having suffered a ruptured appendix, Houdini is at death's door. His wife, Bess, is by his side. Houdini said, if there's anybody that can escape from the other side and come back, who better than Houdini? He vows to his wife that if he is able to reach her in the afterlife, he will divulge a secret code known only to them. And the message that would come through would be the words, Rosabelle, believe. Houdini passes away on October 31st, 1926. 
For years after her husband's death, Bess faithfully holds seances in hopes of hearing from him. She has no success whatsoever. To this day, the Houdini Museum still hosts a seance every Halloween in hopes of contacting the iconic magician. Ever present over the proceedings is this portrait of Cecilia Weiss, the woman who inspired a grief-stricken Houdini to rage against a movement that he felt failed to deliver. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This city has long been a center for innovation and the pursuit of knowledge. So it's no surprise that visitors can find a unique institution celebrating achievements in science, the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Its collection demonstrates the impact chemistry has had on society and includes an early prototype of a battery, a smog detector, and a bakelizer. But according to museum director Jennifer Landry, one item in this collection represents one of the field's most enduring and controversial accomplishments. The artifact is about two inches in diameter, it's circular, and it's made of bronze. It's a medal that honors a man who pushed the boundaries of human knowledge. This medal represents the outlandish experiments he developed to really shape the way that we eat. To whom was this medal awarded? And how did he change American dinner tables forever? 1902, Washington, D.C. As people migrate to cities in droves, America finds itself in a state of transition. More than 50% of the population was now in an urban environment. And that posed some significant challenges because we had to get food to those people. To keep provisions from spoiling on the long journey from farm to table, companies ply their products with various chemicals, including formaldehyde and borax. Formaldehyde was used as a milk additive to keep it from not seeming like it had spoiled. Borax was used to keep meat looking pink and red and what we recognize as being fresh meat. But one man is deeply worried about the impact these substances may be having on Americans' health. A 58-year-old government scientist named Harvey Washington Wiley. Harvey Wiley is a chemist for the USDA. He's concerned because there's no regulations, there's no guidance, there's no ingredients listed on the food that you're buying in the grocery store. Wiley visits Capitol Hill and asks for congressional oversight and laws that would require companies to disclose the ingredients in their products. But the food industry's lobbyists exert a powerful influence. They don't want to be regulated. They don't want the government telling them what they can and cannot add to food. With his calls for oversight rebuffed, the chemist decides to go rogue. Harvey Washington Wiley, he's known for being a bit of an eccentric. So Wiley concocts a radical experiment to discover how these chemicals impact the human body. But he doesn't intend to use lab rats. He'll conduct his tests on humans. His plan is to feed them a series of meals that are laced with chemicals and then monitor how the food affects their health. Wiley enrolls 12 healthy male volunteers and instructs them to eat only the food he provides. Then he requires a binding promise. The participants sign a waiver saying that they will not hold the government liable for any harm done to them. It was dangerous. He didn't know what the results were going to be. In December 1902, Wiley begins his study. 
But this is no sterile lab experiment. It was a fine dining experience. They had formal table settings. They dressed in their best clothes. It's very much like a supper club. The men are served a meal of beef, potatoes, string beans, bread and butter, and a glass of milk. It is laced with copious amounts of borax. In short order, the deleterious effects of this common chemical become very apparent. The men were experiencing headaches and nausea, and so it was clear that borax in a larger quantity was not something that was healthy to consume. For the next six months, Wiley expands the menu with each meal. The volunteers go through testing on chemicals and preservatives such as saltpeter, sulfuric acid, and formaldehyde. These additives also prove harmful to the volunteers. They have nausea, various bowel issues, and weight loss. Wiley takes his disturbing evidence to Capitol Hill with the hopes that Congress will finally be moved to regulate the food industry. But once again, they rebuff his pleas. The food lobbyists are still really powerful. Congress is still siding with business. So is Harvey Washington Wiley's poisonous experiment all for naught? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the early 1900s in the nation's capital. Chemist Harvey Washington Wiley believes that the ingredients used to preserve food may be harmful to people's health. 
To prove it, he cooks up a risky experiment, feeding meals laced with heavy doses of borax and formaldehyde to subjects. So what will come of Wiley's unsavory scheme? With lawmakers refusing to budge, Wiley turns to the press. Journalists devour the details of his human subjects and their chemical-laden meals. They report on their menu, they report on the poisons the men are consuming, what their health effects are, and it becomes a media sensation. Reporters even give the volunteers a catchy moniker. They begin to be known as the Poison Squad. This intense spotlight on the American food system sparks public outcry. It's the tipping point. It's what actually causes the politicians in Washington to change. In 1906, Congress passes the first laws regulating the food industry, which eventually leads to the emergence of a new oversight body, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Nearly 20 years later, in 1924, the Association of Agricultural Chemists presents Harvey Washington Wiley with a medal, a cast of which is on display at the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Wiley's crusade for public health remains highly visible, even today. We can go to the grocery store and we see the ingredients on the food that we're buying, and it's because of Wiley's efforts that we have that benefit. And this medal at the Chemical Heritage Foundation commemorates the man whose radical experiments forever changed the way America eats. Huntsville, Texas is the home of the infamous Huntsville unit of the Texas State Prison, the headquarters of the largest prison system in the country. The vast history of this institution is told at the Texas Prison Museum. It features a gun found in Bonnie and Clyde's car, contraband weapons, and a replicated prison cell. But amongst these remnants of violence is one commonplace item. It's about four inches long, it's made of brass, it's flat and it's smooth on both sides. According to author Chris Barton, this object unlocks an enormous secret. This key was used by a remarkably shady character in one of many amazing exploits he pulled off. Who held this key? And what jaw-dropping feat of trickery did he perform? It's 1942. 21-year-old Ferdinand Waldo Damara is an ambitious young sailor in the U.S. Navy. But when he's passed over for promotion to officer, he decides to take another route up the ladder. Fred DeMara is a very clever individual, someone very skilled at kind of worming his way into institutions where he has no business being. So he comes up with an odd but cunning plan. He forges a set of qualifications. Assuming the identity of one Dr. Joseph Sear from New Brunswick, Canada, he manages to land a job as a surgeon in the Canadian Navy. He was passing himself off as a doctor. He's not a surgeon at all. He's an imposter. In September of 1951, the phony physician finds himself in the midst of the Korean War on a ship called the Cayuga. One night, the crew discovers a group of wounded Koreans adrift in the ocean. There were you know, six or seven South Korean fighters on board, including three who were very, very badly injured. The sailors summon the surgeon, the man they know as Dr. Joseph Sear. So they say, if you're a surgeon, here you go. What the crew doesn't know is that the ship's doctor has no medical training whatsoever. 
extremely unnerving for him. It's a terrifying situation. You've got these men who are, are depending on him to save their lives. Damara turns his attention to the most seriously injured of the three men, a soldier with a bullet lodged near his heart. It seems the only way to save him is to perform open chest surgery. I think it's safe to say he had never done this particular type of operation before. The only surgical knowledge Damara possesses was gleaned from reading the ship's medical books. He began operating on the guy with the bullet wound in the chest, which means you now cutting down through the ribs, getting into the chest, finding the bullet wound in the lungs. With only the scantest of medical knowledge, Damara manages to remove the bullet, stop the bleeding, and skillfully stitch the patient up. Then he tends to the other two injured men. Against all the odds, the operations are successful. He saves the lives of these three wounded Koreans. Back in Canada, the story of the life-saving doctor is picked up by the press, and he is hailed as a hero. But the accolades don't last for long. The Navy gets a disturbing call. Someone's claiming that they are Dr. Joseph Sear of New Brunswick, and they're not in Korea, and they're not in the Navy. When Navy authorities check Damara's fingerprints, his true identity is revealed. With his secret out, Canadian authorities opt not to press charges and instead swiftly deport Damara to the United States. It was such an embarrassment, I think they just wanted to put it behind them as quickly as possible. Back in America, the cunning impersonator isn't about to give up his devious ways. He forges a series of new personas, including law student, cancer researcher, deputy sheriff, and teacher. He was a, a serial imposter. For five years, he glides seamlessly from one profession to the next, until finally, in 1955, his masquerading catches up to him. Using the name Ben Jones, Damara finds work at the state prison in Huntsville, Texas. He's this new warden that kind of came out of nowhere and rose up through the ranks very quickly. The prison director, a man named O.B. Ellis, entrusts him with a key to the maximum security ward, the same one now on display at the Texas Prison Museum. It seems like the perfect fit, until one day a news article about Damara's naval exploits catches the director's eye. What O.B. Ellis sees when he opens this magazine is an article headlined, The Master Imposter and Incredible Tale. It's an elaborate story of a con man who looks alarmingly like the warden, Ben Jones. And suddenly they've got the realization that he's turned over the key to the prison to a criminal. As soon as he is confronted, Damara flees town. He manages to lay low in New England until he is finally caught in 1957. He serves only six months in prison and never again passes as an imposter. As con artists go, the damage that Damara did was relatively limited. He wasn't in it to steal money. He didn't hurt anybody. And so I think that made people a lot more forgiving of, of his exploits. This prison key used by Ferdinand de Mora is now on display at the Texas Prison Museum as a reminder of the unbelievable journey of one man who dared to fool the world. With over 75 hospitals, Boston, Massachusetts is known as the healthcare capital of New England. 
Documenting this legacy is the largest academic medical archive in the world. Harvard University's Francis A. Countway Library of Medicine. Civil War elixirs, an antique body weight scale, and one of the world's first scientific encyclopedias are among more than 600,000 items in its illustrious collection. But within this haven of health, one peculiar artifact tells a sickening tale. It's five by three inches, it's made of plaster, and it's browned with age. As historian Duane Lucia attests, this anomalous item played a well-defined role in a gruesome case of greed and deceit. The object was a key piece of evidence in a historical trial that still has significance today. What is this perplexing object? And how did it alter the field of criminology forever? November 23, 1849, Boston. Police are summoned to the home of a frantic woman who claims her husband has mysteriously gone missing. His name is Dr. George Parkman, a well-respected physician and one of the richest men in the city. Parkman had made his money in real estate. Everybody in Boston knew him um, because he walked everywhere and he always wore a top hat. According to his wife, Parkman left the house around 9 a.m. on a routine errand to collect rent from his tenants. But the typically punctual doctor never returned. As police dig deeper, they discover that the easily identifiable doctor was last seen at the Harvard Medical College, paying a visit to a colleague named John Webster. John Webster was the head of the chemistry department at Harvard Medical College. He was in high standing, very well-liked. Police question the esteemed chemistry professor and learn he's been friends with Parkman for decades and had recently borrowed money from him. Webster tells the police that he met with Dr. Parkman and that he paid Dr. Parkman the debt that he owed him and that he had a receipt for it and nothing else happened. Investigators thank Webster and begin to speculate that perhaps Parkman was robbed or even killed for the large sum of cash he was carrying. But as the days pass without any physical clues, the trail goes cold. You can't have a murderer if you can't establish that the murder was committed. You have to have a body. Then, on November 30th, one week after Parkman's disappearance, police are summoned back to Harvard by the university's alarmed janitor. He leads officers to the school's sub-basement, where he's just discovered a terrifying sight. Fragments of a human corpse. It was ghastly, to say the least. As investigators sift through the scene, they find a few limbs and broken dentures. It appears the remains have been burned, and some show signs of additional tampering. The body parts were treated with a chemical that was an attempt to get them to... Uh, decay a little bit quicker. Investigators learn that the only person in the department with access to these chemicals is its chair, Dr. Webster. And that's not all. The body parts that were found in the sub-basement was directly under the laboratory of Dr. Webster. Investigators are convinced the indebted Webster murdered Parkman. But medical examiners can't conclusively identify the badly disfigured remains as Parkman's. And unless the body parts could be proven to be 
Dr. Parkman's, they couldn't connect Dr. Webster to the crime. To charge Webster, investigators realize they must conclusively identify the victim. So they turn to the only other evidence found on the scene, the false teeth. Their hope is that they may be able to link them to Parkman. But it's an unorthodox approach that's never been utilized before. With no other option, they track down Parkman's dentist, Dr. Cooley Keep. He was Dr. Parkman's dentist for 25 years. Keep tells investigators that Parkman did, in fact, wear dentures. He retrieves a plaster mold he took of Parkman's teeth, the very one on display at the Francis Countway Library of Medicine. And when he holds the dental plate to the mold, it's a perfect fit. Right away, he was able to identify it as Dr. Parkman's. On March 19th, Webster is put on trial for the murder of George Parkman, and Dr. Keep is the prosecution's star witness. After just 12 days, Webster is found guilty. But despite the swift verdict, the trial has a lasting legal and scientific impact. The Parkman-Webster murder case was a turning point for the American judicial system. It was the first time that they had used dental forensics to convict somebody of murder. And today, this plaster mold at the Francis Countway Library of Medicine reminds visitors of a sensational case that changed investigations forever. More than 7,000 feet above sea level, on a desert plateau, is the isolated town of Los Alamos, New Mexico. The town's motto is Los Alamos, where discoveries are made, and uh, that's always been the case, I think. Nowhere is that moniker more evident than at the Bradbury Science Museum on the campus of the Los Alamos National Laboratory. On display here are a Kevlar bomb disposal suit used on the battlefields of Iraq, a 19th century perfume bottle made of uranium glass, and a gas mask distributed during the experimental weapons tests of the 1940s. But the most noteworthy object in this collection had an earth-shattering impact on modern history. The artifact is big. It's over 10,000 pounds. It's yellow. At the time it was completed, the artifact was the most powerful device ever constructed by mankind. According to historian Alan B. Carr, this is a replica of a top-secret atomic bomb that inspired an audacious act of betrayal from a most unlikely figure. At the heart of history's most secret project was a teenager. He wanted to single-handedly rebalance the playing field between the world's great powers. Who was this prodigy? And how did he alter the course of history forever? Los Alamos, New Mexico, 1944. 18-year-old Harvard graduate Ted Hall is a brilliant young scientist who is working on a top-secret military program known as the Manhattan Project. The objective? To design and build the world's first atomic bomb. His job was basically to calculate how much material would you need to successfully create a nuclear explosion. So this really was work that was at the heart of the project. Hall is known as a quiet and hard-working young man, but his colleagues don't realize he is concealing a sinister secret. He had another side. He was very interested in communism, and he brought that with him when he arrived at the project here at Los Alamos. 
As they near the point of success, Hall begins to feel conflicted about his contribution to the project. As he was developing this superweapon, he also started to have qualms about the United States having a monopoly on it. After several months, the teenager quietly makes a decision that will reverberate through history. He decides that he's going to volunteer his services as a spy for the Soviet Union. On a visit to New York City, Paul takes the bold step of arranging a meeting with a well-known communist sympathizer, a man named Serge Kurnikov. He's very nervous. He knows that he's crossing a threshold. After the initial contact, the Soviets set up a special system for Hall to relay documents and information via courier to a KGB handler in New York. He's playing a very high-stakes game at this point. Despite the intense security at Los Alamos, Hall manages to stow away some of the U.S. government's most sensitive information, including plans for the atomic bomb. Hall smuggled out critical weapons design information on the Fat Man-type bomb. The Fat Man bomb, a replica of which is now on display at the Bradbury Science Museum, was at the time the most powerful weapon created by man. And on August 9, 1945, the Fat Man is used to virtually destroy the city of Nagasaki, Japan. As Ted Hall discovered the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that probably reinforced his opinion that the U.S. should not have a monopoly on nuclear weapons. Then, in August 1949, the Soviet Union ignites a terrifying arms race by testing its own nuclear device. And when U.S. intelligence officials learn that its design is strikingly similar to the Fat Man, they are determined to find out how their secrets fell into Russia's hands. So, for Ted Hall, who is now a pioneering biophysicist at the University of Chicago, it's a nerve-wracking moment. Hall had helped the Soviet Union. He had passed along information. That act could certainly be interpreted as treason. And, of course, treason can carry with it the punishment of death. The FBI launches a full-scale investigation. They were desperate to get information on how our secret information was leaving the country and getting into Soviet hands. The FBI gets hold of a stack of heavily encrypted Russian communiques, known as the Venona Papers. It was really difficult for the FBI to piece things together. But eventually, the investigators managed to link the papers to the young scientist, Ted Hall. So, on March 16, 1951, the FBI brings in the now 25-year-old for questioning. They really try and grill Ted Hall. Uh, they want to bring the truth out. But Ted Hall holds up under a withering attack. He's very intelligent, and he navigates through the questioning extremely well. Not wishing to expose the success of their code-breaking operation, the government knows they need a confession from Hall in order to press charges. But the young man admits to nothing. Thus leaving the FBI with really nothing to be able to convict him on. Ted Hall escaped. Hall abandons the Soviet network for good in 1953 and goes on to have a long and influential career in science. But in 1995, when he is 70 years old, his long-held secret is finally exposed when the Venona Papers are declassified. 
When asked about this, he essentially admitted that he had collaborated with the Soviet Union. He was no longer the person which had committed espionage, but he did say he wasn't necessarily ashamed of the person who had. Since so much time has passed, no charges are ever brought against Hall. And today, at the Bradbury Science Museum at Los Alamos National Laboratory, this replica of the Fat Man bomb stands as a reminder of the teenage wunderkind who betrayed his country and played a major role in sparking the Cold War. Galveston, Texas. This island town is bounded by the blue-gray waters of the Gulf of Mexico and packed with fun-filled attractions, including a seaside amusement park and the largest beach in the state of Texas. The colorful history of this beautiful place is recorded at the Galveston County Museum. Its collection includes a sword from the 1863 Battle of Galveston, costumes from annual Mardi Gras celebrations, and poker chips from the gangster-run casinos of the 1950s. But one exhibit here embodies the heart-rending pathos of one of Galveston's most formative events. There's 12 rings here in this collection. Many of them are gold rings, some are set with stones, some are just cheap metal, but they were all very special to their owners. According to museum director Helen Moody, these precious heirlooms are sad artifacts of one of the deadliest natural disasters in American history. This collection of rings are some of the last remnants of a city that vanished overnight. What catastrophic event separated these rings from their owners? And what lasting impact did it have on man's struggle with Mother Nature? Galveston, Texas, 1891. 30-year-old meteorologist Isaac Klein has recently relocated his wife and two young daughters to this prosperous port city. And he has assumed a new position that combines his profession and his passion. He had a new assignment to man the weather station in Galveston. For him, the weather is just absolutely fascinating, and he considers himself a true expert. In his role as station chief, Klein is tasked with sending hourly barometric and temperature readings to the National Weather Bureau in Washington. The whole idea of predicting weather wasn't very accepted. They were very good at it, and so there were a lot of people who were skeptical. Nevertheless, after only a short time on the job, Klein is called on by city officials to weigh in on a simmering local debate. Residents are concerned that tropical storms coming into the Gulf of Mexico are a threat to the town, so they want to build a sturdy seawall to protect it. Galveston sees the seawall as the way to save their island. It will keep the water out. But Klein asserts that a costly seawall would be entirely unnecessary. He argues that the region's unique atmospheric conditions and the rotation of the Earth will almost always send hurricanes spiraling northward up the East Coast. And he has the historical records to prove it. He felt like the chances of any storms coming into the Gulf Hitting Galveston was an absolute delusion. He states that if a hurricane did strike Galveston, the region's shallow water depth would prevent waves from reaching dangerous heights. In fact, he is so confident in his theory that he builds a home just blocks from the beach. 
he liked the idea of being by the sea and, and didn't think anything about it. And after nine years of peaceful domestic life in this seaside abode, it seems as if nothing can go wrong. But one day in early September 1900, Klein receives an urgent telegram from the Weather Bureau in Washington. A storm that had gone through Cuba did not take its usual path up the East Coast. It had turned and come into the Gulf. But Klein is unperturbed. He still doesn't believe that it will actually be a threat to Galveston. But on the morning of September 8th, Klein comes face-to-face with an undeniable reality. The waves are just pounding, feels them shaking the timbers of his house. Soon, the skies grow dark and the wind begins to howl. Then, area residents watch in horror as the sea begins to take over their city. The water comes in and pretty soon they notice it's up to the sidewalks. The meteorologist realizes he's made a terrible mistake. It's too late to evacuate the population or even save his own family. By late afternoon, a massive wall of water plows through the city. It wipes out everything in its path. It hits his house and the flying debris knocks him unconscious. Miraculously, Isaac manages to survive. When he regains his senses, he scrambles to locate his family. Thankfully, he finds his children still alive. But his beloved wife is missing. He knows almost instantly that she won't be found. The despondent scientist wanders through the tangled wreckage of a once great city. It is a devastated moonscape. A few ghostly sights of houses that are still standing and then he'll suddenly see them moving because they're floating away. The death toll in Galveston is almost unimaginable. It is estimated that as many as 12,000 people have perished in a matter of hours. As the city goes through the grim task of combing through the wreckage, victims' jewelry and personal effects, like these rings at the Galveston County Museum, are removed in the hopes that they will be picked up by surviving family members. The rings were probably never claimed because there was no family left to claim them. In the storm's wake, a crestfallen Isaac Klein wonders how he got it so wrong. It must have gone through his mind, is he to blame for all of this destruction? From that day, Klein dedicates his life to studying hurricanes. He comes to discover that coastal regions of the Gulf of Mexico are in fact highly susceptible to tropical storms. And powerful hurricanes are capable of carrying huge storm surges through even the shallowest coastal waters. Klein publishes two landmark books, which serve to educate generations of weather researchers about this complicated science. In the aftermath of the Great Hurricane of 1900, the people of Galveston are determined to rebuild. And this time, there is no debate. The Galveston Seawall, completed in 1904, becomes one of the greatest engineering marvels in the world. It's 18 feet tall. It has rocks that are 23 feet thick. And today, at the Galveston County Museum, this collection of 12 rings is a poignant reminder of the great storm of 1900 
and the thousands of victims swept up in its wake. From a master illusionist to an ingenious imposter, a deadly dinner to an atomic secret. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.